Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. Today I decided to try something a little bit different. Up until this point, all of my episodes have been interviews with interesting guests who've had great things to say and I've really learned a lot and enjoyed speaking with them. But today I'm going to do my first solo episode. Well, the reason for that is that I often have spiels that I do with some of my patients on topics that they find helpful and having a pre-recorded episode that I can refer people to would be helpful for them and helpful for me. I spend less time sort of blabbing away in a monologue in my therapy sessions, which I don't particularly like to do. But these pieces of information I thought would be interesting and useful. And obviously, if you're not in my therapy practice, hopefully this will be helpful for you too. So I have decided I'd like to spend some time talking about the ABCs of cognitive therapy. Now, cognitive therapy has been around for a long time. I certainly can't take any credit for inventing any part of it. And I've been interested in it for many years. Back when I was a graduate student, I remember just being fascinated by reading some of the classic cognitive therapy texts by Albert Ellis, who was the founder of Rational Emotive Therapy, and then again with Aaron Beck and a number of these early old-timers who talked about cognitive therapy. Since then, there's been an explosion of cognitive therapists, and you can get all sorts of books and resources in the bookstore and on the internet. And so what I'm talking about today isn't anything particularly unique. Most psychologists have their own way of repackaging cognitive therapy in ways that work for them. And just over the years, I've discovered some ways that I can talk about it that I find to be very helpful for people. For this episode, I want to talk about what I call the ABCs. Again, not, not really a novel concept or anything, but I'm going to try to describe it in a way that I think will be simple and practical and helpful. I don't really consider myself a cognitive therapist per se. I usually take more of an eclectic approach to therapy. I try to weave in lots of different modalities and ways that I find to be helpful, but certainly cognitive therapy techniques have their place, and especially when you're talking about certain kinds of particular disorders such as anxiety and sometimes depression. Uh, specific, these cognitive therapy techniques can be really helpful. Also, when people are struggling through trying to figure out their moods and their feelings and they sort of feel overwhelmed by them, it's a good technique to be able to try to identify feelings and try to understand the thoughts that are behind them, and that allows for a very helpful therapeutic tool. First off, I have a handout that I've developed that is helpful for people. I'm going to try to describe it because it's not that complicated. If anybody wants a copy of this, though, I'd be happy to provide it. Just send me an email or message me on my Facebook, Dr. Aaron Kaplan Facebook page, and I'd be happy to provide you a copy. But I can also describe it, and hopefully you can visualize it as I'm going along. And also, one other thing I want to say is that if you find this helpful, please let me know. Like the episode, subscribe to the podcast Mind Tricks Radio if you like what you're hearing. The likes and the subscriptions really help get the word out. It's also good feedback to me to let me know that people are listening and finding the information valuable. And of course, the more feedback and positive reinforcement I get, the more I'm likely to 
record more episodes. So let me know what you think. So first off, I'd like you to visualize a very basic handout. And imagine there are four columns, and the top of each column, column one is labeled A, column two is B, column three is C, and column four is D. These are the four columns on this basic worksheet that I use. The ABCs of, and well, Ds I should say, because there's a D column. ABCDs of cognitive, uh, cognitive therapy. And so if you imagine in column A, the title of column A is event or trigger. So in this column, whenever we're talking about the way somebody feels or what's going on with somebody in the cognitive therapy paradigm, we're usually often looking for some kind of an event or trigger that the person then has a direction, of, a linear direction of thinking and feeling about what happened. So the event or trigger is just simply something that happened or something that's happening. An event or trigger is sort of like, uh, think about a newspaper article where you're reading it, and usually if the newspaper article is trying not to be too biased, which of course a lot of media is very biased, but if it's just presenting the news, there's a lack of emotional valence, a lack of emotion, a lack of judgment or interpretation that's going on in the article. It's just simply describing what happened or what's going on. So, for example, I ate my lunch. Okay, that would be an example of a very neutral description of an event that happened. I ate my lunch and I really enjoyed it. That would add some interpretation to it. So we leave that for the later columns, okay? We're just looking in column A for a description of something that happened. I ate my lunch. I went to the mall. I got a D on a test. A teacher commented on my paper and took off some points because she didn't like the way that I formatted the paragraph and some of the adjectives I used. Okay, that's a factual thing that happened. Events can be external or internal. So an external event would be something that's going on in the world around you. Kind of most of what I just mentioned, those examples are external events. It's a windy day outside. Uh, I'm stuck in traffic. These are all things that are going on in the world around you. Events can also be internal. So an internal event really is something that's going on inside your mind or inside your body. An example of Examples of that would be my heart was beating quickly. I felt sweaty. My stomach is upset. Or I started having thoughts about my future. Those are events that are going on inside your body. The reason why those are important is a lot of times with feelings, and especially with anxiety, there's an interpretation of things that are going on inside one's body, and the person is then responding to that. So a lot of times with panic attacks, panic disorder, OCD, other kinds of anxiety-related issues, there's often an interpretation of something that's going on inside the body. So that's why it's important to know that events can be external or internal. Now again, we're talking about it like it's a newspaper article. So you would say to yourself you know, when you're talking about the event, my stomach felt upset. You wouldn't say my stomach 
felt upset because I was worried about doing poorly on my test or I was worried about a conversation that I was going to have with my boss. You're just simply focusing in on the stomach being being upset. Why your stomach is upset is something that you take a look at later on in the ABC model. So that's it, event or trigger. Usually what I do is I have people try to list a very specific event or trigger in that A column to try to be able to hone in on what was the precipitating event that led to this cascade of thinking and feeling that a person has. So next, moving on to column C, and I'm skipping column B for a purpose. We'll go, we'll go back to that, but let's talk about column C first. Column C is emotions or feelings. So this is just simply how you're feeling, what's going on inside you. The reason why I like to start next with column C rather than column B is that usually column C, the feelings that you're having are a little easier to notice than the thoughts. So feelings are very visceral, they linger, you often have physical or physiological sensations that go along with the feelings. It's a lot easier to notice that than the thoughts. So we start with the feelings. And so feelings are interesting because feelings, we can have more than one feeling at the same time. I know in some of the podcasts that episodes that I've done so far, we've I've had guests that have talked about that. You can have more than one feeling at the same time. I like to refer to this as a mixed mood state. It's a little bit of a fancy way of saying you can have more than one feeling at, a, at the same time. And when you jumble all of those feelings up, you really don't know what to make of them sometimes. And I hear a lot of people sometimes saying, well, I feel overwhelmed. I feel weird. Like they don't know how to describe it. Because when you have more than one emotion that's mixed into the pot, it's really hard to pinpoint what's actually going on. So if that's happening to you, if you don't know how you feel, but you're just sort of feeling emotionally stirred up, you're feeling overwhelmed, or that's how you're describing it as overwhelmed, chances are what's actually going on is you're feeling more than one feeling at the same time, and it's just a matter of trying to pick apart what are those feelings. And by the way, that as an exercise in and of itself is very helpful for people, just trying to identify what are the emotions I'm having it's therapeutic. Like when you can tell like, all right, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of feeling this sort of morass of overwhelmness. I don't know what it is. Okay, slow down. I'm actually, I'm feeling guilty. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling embarrassed. I'm feeling sad. All four of these feelings, like when you can kind of pick it apart and understand like what feelings are actually going on there that in and of itself is very helpful for people. It helps them understand what's going on within themselves. So, feelings. What feelings are you having? Well, you know, there's some classic ones. The, the main ones that you're probably going to be feeling if you're, if you're feeling a mixed mood state. You're, you may be feeling anxious, fearful, sad, angry, embarrassed, ashamed. I'm sure there's other, some other major ones there that I missed, but... You know, those are sort of the classic ones, so be on the lookout for those. So what I have people do is when they are looking at that C column, they're picking out all of the feelings that they can identify. It's really important because each feeling is going to link back or dial back to one of the thoughts that's in column B. And so we really want to know what are the feelings that we're having. 
And I want to say something too. English is kind of interesting. I'm not sure if other languages are like this, but oftentimes we automatically, we make these connections between the event or trigger, which is the column A, and the feelings or emotion, which is in the column C. We say things like, he made me so angry, or such and such happened, and it made me feel so guilty, or I tripped down and fell and dropped all my books, and that made me feel so embarrassed. So we have this way of speaking that connects the event or trigger to the feeling as if the event or trigger caused the feeling. That's another reason why I'm talking about the C column first, is because people tend to think that way. They tend to bypass the thinking, and they go straight from event to feeling. Now, what I want to say and especially in the cognitive therapy realm, we basically don't believe that event or a trigger can cause a feeling. All feelings have some kind of thought associated with them. It goes event or trigger, thought, feeling. The thought causes the feeling. So here we are now in the B column, the thoughts. And the goal here is to try to connect the thought as a causal mechanism for the feeling. Now, thoughts are kind of interesting, and some people refer to them as automatic thoughts. Uh, they happen at such a, such a rapid pace that until you slow down your thinking or you go back, back and examine it, it's very difficult to know sometimes what you're thinking. Our mind is just buzzing throughout the day with all kinds of thoughts that we're not consciously aware of. Why? Well, because our brains work like the fastest computer, like way faster than the fastest computers that you can imagine that are, are man-made computers. The brain works quickly, and it works in parallel. So you can have many, many thoughts at the same time, and how could you possibly be aware on a conscious level of every thought you were having at the same time? You just can't do it. The brain is a thinking machine. So these thoughts, why are they so fast? Well, obviously they need to be because we need to respond quickly and we need to multitask and we need to do a lot of things without consciously thinking about what we're thinking. And these thoughts, they're transmitted, they're electrochemical events in the brain. There's actually electricity in your brain. The electricity travels along the, the neuron, through along the axon, and when it gets to the end of the neuron, it releases chemicals, which are called neurotransmitters, mostly neurotransmitters, into a synapse that then bind to receptors onto the next neuron, and it's an electrochemical event that sends these thoughts along pathways all throughout your brain, and it happens almost instantaneously. The goal in cognitive therapy, and when we're looking at this B column, is to try to slow that down a little bit, to try to figure out and put words to the thoughts that we're having. What were we actually thinking at the time when we experienced a feeling? What thought was going on? And the only way to do that is to become more consciously aware of what you might have been thinking and put words to it. Because in order for us to really understand it on a conscious level, we need to have the words to be able to describe what the thought was. One example I like to give, just to sort of highlight what I'm talking about, how these thoughts occur on a unconscious level. We're not aware that we're having them most of the time, but then we are aware of the visceral emotional response we have. And I like to use this example because I live in Hawaii. I grew up in California, and I really love the outdoors. So in California, 
if you've been in California, you live in California, you know in the summer especially it gets pretty dry. And when you go hiking in the, in the hills, there's a lot of, well, really crunchy, crispy leaves all over the place. And sometimes when you're hiking, you hear some kind of rustling off to the side of the path which you're usually being really careful about anyway because there's poison oak everywhere. But aside from that, there are snakes. And sometimes there are rattlesnakes, and snakes can be kind of spooky, especially when you know that rattlesnakes are poisonous. You know, it's very easy to worry about getting bit by a rattlesnake. And anyway, those things are pretty irrational because most people don't get bit by rattlesnakes or get hurt by snakes anyway. So that's a whole other story. But anyway... People who live in California are often wary of snakes when they're hiking. I know I certainly was. I grew up being concerned about snakes. So when I hear rustling off to the side of the trail, I get a little bit of a jolt of anxiety. Not a huge jolt. I don't go running down the trail. But my senses get perked up, and I feel a little anxious. I can feel a little bit, you know, that heartbeat a couple of extra times thinking, oh, you know, what, what is it? And I'll look over to the side and kind of see, is it an animal? What's going on? I'm not consciously thinking any of these things, of course. I'm just sort of aware that I've got this, this trigger, the sound of rustling of leaves to the side and sort of the sense that it could be something dangerous. Usually it's not. I keep walking. I don't give it a second thought. I certainly don't say to myself, oh, I hear rustling. I wonder if there's a snake. Anyway, in around 1992, I did move to Hawaii. And guess what? There are no snakes in Hawaii. No rattlesnakes, no big snakes that bite. There is a little snake. I think it's kind of blind snake. And they don't even look like snakes. They look like worms. And on rainy days, sometimes you see them flopping around on the sidewalk. But that doesn't... I didn't even know those were snakes until years after I I uh, moved here. I thought that they were worms that came out after a rainy day. But big snakes they don't have. So when I first came here, I would go hiking with friends, and I'd hear rustling in the bushes, and I would quickly look over, and they thought it was funny, like I was being kind of paranoid or a little jumpy or whatever. And, you know, I didn't really know what to make of it. And I finally realized, like, okay, I'm on snake alert here. I'm on snake alert, and I'm wondering, like, is there a snake in the bushes? And of course, there is no snake in bushes. There is no danger of snakes in Hawaii. But I had this idea from having grown up in California that there could be some dangerous snakes. So the automatic thought I was having, the event there would be rustling in the bushes. The feeling was, let's just call it anxiety, fear. And the thought was, there could be a dangerous snake in the bushes, right? In California, there were dangerous snakes in the bushes. Of course, the actual danger is not that great, but I, I knew that there were snakes. In Hawaii, no snakes, but both times I would have that automatic thought that I wasn't aware of until I figured it out, snake in the bush, and could be dangerous, and then the feeling of anxiety. My friends laughed. They heard rustling and they heard the same event, rustling in the bushes. But instead of feeling anxious, well, they really didn't feel anything. Probably because the thought that was going on in their head without them being aware of it was, oh, rustling in the bushes, probably a minor bird, probably a cute little bird, nothing really dangerous. Because really, there's, there's nothing really dangerous at all in the 
forests in Hawaii. I guess there's wild boars and whatnot, but people usually aren't afraid of those. So, a venter trigger, a thought that we have that's often not happening at a conscious level, and a feeling that results from it in the C column. So let's talk a little bit about a mixed mood state. Let's do another example here. Let's imagine you're going to meet a friend for breakfast. And this is something you had set up. And lo and behold, you oversleep. And you miss the breakfast. Well, so that, that would be the event or trigger, by the way. I overslept when I was supposed to wake up and meet my friend for breakfast. Okay, if we skip to the C column, what kinds of feelings could be going on there? Well, guilt for missing the breakfast. Let's just imagine anxiety, too. Some guilt, some anxiety. And how about also sadness? Guilt, anxiety, sadness. Let's say you figure out these are the feelings that I'm feeling, guilt, anxiety, and sadness. Well, if we go back to the B column, there are going to be thoughts that are associated with all three of those feelings. So let's take guilt, for example. Well, that one's pretty simple. I might be thinking something like, I really screwed up here. I made my friend wait for me and didn't show up. And that was wrong and bad of me. And so something like that would be a thought or thoughts that would lead me to feel guilty. And by the way, you can have more than one thought that leaves the guilt. One thought here could be, for example, I screwed up and I stood my friend up and that was wrong and I really blew it. That's a kind of a screen with thoughts. It's, it's sort of related. But maybe another one would be something like, my friend really needed me because she had something important to talk about and I let her down. They're kind of related, but they're different thoughts. And so I just want to say, you, you could have multiple thoughts that are feeding into the same feeling. So let's talk about anxiety for a second. What would be an anxiety-related thought? Well, my friend's going to be mad at me, and she's not going to want to have breakfast with me ever again. She's going to think that I'm not a reliable friend and that I let her down and she can't count on me, and so she's going to distance herself from me. Maybe I was looking forward to asking her an important question or something that I needed some personal counsel or help for, and she was one of my trusted confidants, and so now she's not going to want to help me anymore. She's not going to be in my corner. Those are the kinds of thoughts that might lead a person to feel anxious. So let's talk about sadness. Okay, feeling sad, what would a thought be that would associate that? Well, I really wanted to see my friend, and I've really been missing her, and I don't know when the next opportunity there's going to be for me to see her again. That's very unfortunate. That could lead a person to feel sad. So there we have it. There's a simple example, three different feelings that could be going on at the same time, all of them that have thoughts associated with them. And that's the important thing, is to recognize that connection between neutral event the thoughts that we have about them, that again, we may not be consciously aware about it until we go back and examine them like I just did, and the feeling or feelings 
that you're having. So let's go on to column D. First off, I, I just want to say that going through that exercise of identifying the connection between A, B, and C can be very, very helpful and therapeutic in and of itself. And usually that's the first thing that I have patients start doing is just trying to list that out, trying to understand what is happening, what are the thoughts that I'm having when I take a look, I slow down and I go back and I look at it, and then what are the feelings I'm having. That in and of itself can be very therapeutic for people because it gives them a little bit more insight and awareness about their thinking process. So the D column, this is where the real therapeutic intervention part takes place. So the D column is what I call countering or reframing thoughts. Basically, the goal here is to go back and look at the thoughts in the B column and try to counter them or reframe them, replace them with thoughts that are going to work a lot better for us. And when I look at the countering thoughts, I'm usually trying to ask people to take a look at the thoughts in that B column. Are they rational? And are they functional? It can also be an or, are they functional? Because sometimes they're rational but not functional. Sometimes they're, they're, they're neither rational nor functional, but it's helpful to take a look at both. So let's start with rational first. How do we know whether or not a thought is rational? Well, the best way to look at that is to ask yourself, what is the evidence or data that the thought is true? What is the evidence or data? So if we take a look at the example with anxiety, in that example that I gave before, my friend isn't going to want to be my friend anymore. She's just going to ditch me. She's going to be like, I'm such a bad person here for standing them up. I can't count on I can't count on my friend anymore. So I just don't want to be her friend anymore. What is the evidence or data that that's true? Well, I, of course this is completely hypothetical, but I'm just going to going to make stuff up. Let's just imagine that you and the person who you stood up have been friends for 10 years. And let's just say 99% of the time You've been on time for appointments that you've had or get-togethers. You have a really nice friendship. So that's a long history of friendship there. That's a long history of friendship. And maybe during that entire 10 years, there was a time where you flaked out or something didn't get, go perfectly. And maybe the friend was a little ticked off about it even. Did the friendship end? So that would be an example of looking back in the data. After knowing somebody for 10 years, there has bound to be at least one example or more than one example where things didn't go perfectly. And did that person choose to continue to be my friend or not? That would be an example of evidence or data. Also, maybe that friend stood you up. Maybe that friend has done something before that wasn't like perfect in the friendship realm. And you cut her some slack. And she appreciated it, and you continue to be friends. You have the track record in your friendship of it being solid without one event completely throwing it off. Now, sure, she might be ticked off. She might call you later and say, where were you? I had to wait. I was kind of annoyed. But 
the anxiety around the thought, she's not going to want to be my friend anymore, she's not going to trust me anymore, maybe that's not rational. Maybe it's not based on evidence or data. Let's go back to the snake example, you know, the one that I gave about myself. So I'm thinking to myself, maybe there's a snake out there in, in the bushes, a dangerous, venomous snake that's going to bite me and I'm going to die and, and whatnot. Well, if I realize that that's why I was feeling anxious was that thought and I asked myself, is that rational? Well, that's a hard no, because there's no venomous snakes in Hawaii, at least not on the land. I don't know if there's any in the ocean. I haven't gotten that far, but there's no land snakes, certainly no venomous land, uh, land snakes to worry about. So that would be a clear example of it's not rational. Go back and ex examine the evidence or data of whether or not the thing that you're thinking about, the B and the, the thought in the B column, is rational, is it supported by evidence or data? And a lot of the times that's going to be a no. It's not actually supported by evidence or data. I know that sometimes, for example, people feel very anxious in a social context. And the thought they have when we go back, let's just say the the trigger or the, the, the event or trigger was I had a conversation with my supervisor. And let's say the feeling was anxious. And let's say the thought was I looked like a babbling, bumbling idiot and my supervisor is going to think I'm not competent. Well, oftentimes... When we look at the evidence or data of that, well, the person might go back and say, well, I've had a lot of conversations with my supervisor or other supervisors in my life, and usually I feel self-conscious about totally screwing up and looking like an idiot, but never has there been any real negative consequence to prove that that's actually true. So it's all in my head, really. It's a, uh, an anxiety-provoking thought that I have that has never really been true, uh, proven true by evidence or data. The next part of the D column is to ask, is the thought that I'm having functional? Is that thought in the D column serving my purposes in any meaningful way? And if it's not, what is a more functional thought that's going to really help me achieve my goals? And is there any action that I can take that's going to be helpful? Because obviously just thinking and ruminating about something that's not serving any purposeful goals for me is not really, really helpful. So for example, let's just go back to the missed breakfast appointment. I am having the thought, I stood up my friend. This was just a really horrible thing for me to do. It was so wrong and bad, and I just totally screwed up here, and this is just, just a horrible thing I did. Okay, maybe we decided that that's not actually rational, that it was a mistake, but it wasn't the most horrible thing in the world. That, that would be another way to kind of reframe that, that it's not as bad as I'm making it sound. But if I ask myself, is it functional? Well, you know, it's probably not functional. Beating myself up and racking myself with guilt over something that happened that was a mistake is not going to help me and it's not going to help my friendship in any particular way. So rather than spending a lot of time focusing on that, is there anything I can do to kind of help that situation? Well, obviously giving an apology to the friend would 
most situations really help trying to make it up to them in some minor way. Now, I'm not talking about going overboard because friends are usually pretty understanding and we don't want to go overboard compensating for something that happened or something that, that went on most of the time. But it's not really helpful to rack ourselves with guilt over something, a mistake we made, it wasn't intentional. So is there something that we can do that'll help us ultimately feel better about that thought we're having that's making us feel guilty? Or if I'm feeling anxious. So let's go back to the social anxiety and the self-consciousness example here for a moment when we're talking about, is it functional? So let's just say a person, every time they speak with their supervisor or they speak with somebody in authority, they're having that thought, I sound like an idiot, I sound stupid, and then they're they're feeling anxious for that. Is that functional? Well, it's not really helping you to tell yourself, I sound like an idiot, I sound stupid, because you know you need to do those things anyway. So instead of telling yourself, I feel, I, I, I look stupid, I'm, 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 I'm really, you know, blowing it when I'm talking to my supervisor, perhaps a better thing to say, a more functional thing to say would be, well, I, I've just got to do it anyway, because I need to communicate with my supervisor. And until I get some kind of feedback that I'm really blowing it, whether I'm feeling anxious or not, it doesn't really help me to be focusing in on how badly I'm doing especially when there's no evidence or data to show, show that I'm doing that. So is it functional is really saying, like, I'm, f- I'm focusing in on these thoughts that are really not helping me that much, and I'm not getting a whole lot of evidence that they're true anyway, so maybe I ought to just try to dismiss them and tell myself it's not really helping me to have these thoughts. So that's, is it functional? So that's how I do this ABC and then also the D model part of this exercise is to have people identify the events or triggers, the thoughts they're having about them, the feelings they're having, and again, there's more than one feeling, oftentimes for many people, I call that a mixed mood state, and then the ways to evaluate, is the thought rational and is the thought functional? And usually then I'll have people write the alternative thoughts. I'll have them go back and say, this would be a more rational thought in this situation. This would be a more functional thought. Now, one or two other things I want to say before I wrap up. One mistake that people often make in the B column is they label the thought with a question. For example, let's say somebody might say, why did I do something stupid? That might be their thought that they're listing in the B column to, to the feeling of guilt. Why did I do something so stupid and selfish? I find that questions don't really help so much in the B column. I would try to rephrase it as a statement. So instead of, why would I do something so stupid and selfish, you might say, I was really stupid for not getting up in time to meet my friend, and or I'm such a selfish person for not waking up in time for the breakfast. Again, these are in the B columns. I'm not saying those are true statements, but those are what you're thinking that are making you feel that way. You're not thinking a question. You're thinking a statement. When you make a question like, why did you do something stupid? You're actually saying, I did something stupid. So try to phrase it as a statement and not as a question. And the last thing I want to say, and 
this is about a concept that I like to refer to as a core irrational belief, that oftentimes the thoughts that we're having in the B column, they follow sort of a predictable pattern. They're often influenced by these core irrational beliefs that we have. Core rational beliefs are kind of like sort of deeply held beliefs that are at our core. They're irrational because they're not true, and they're beliefs because they're not fact. They're just in our head. So an example of a core rational belief might be, I'm an incompetent, lame person. Okay. Now, I know you're not literally telling yourself that in your head, but that is sort of like the underlying internalized belief you might have. If you believe that you're an incompetent, lame person, then it's very likely that many of the Bs that you have in the B column, many of the thoughts and beliefs, automatic thoughts you have, are going to stem from that core rational belief. They're going to be thoughts that in some way or another reflect your belief about yourself that you're lame or incompetent in some way. So for example, I have the core rational belief. If I have, I'm an incompetent and lame person, then let's say I take a test. That would be the event or trigger in the A column. And let's say the feeling is anxiety. The thought might be, I really screwed up that test and that's going to screw up my grade and I am just not going to make it you know, in this class, and I'm going to screw up in life, and blah, blah, blah. Well, you're, you may have those kinds of beliefs if you have the core rational belief that you are a lame and incompetent person. Those kinds of beliefs that you get, the thoughts in the B column, are going to stem from that. And so keep an eye out for that. Now, I talk a lot about core rational beliefs in my practice uh, with my patients, and maybe I'll do another episode at some point specifically about that. And then Another interesting thing that I talk about that stems from core rational beliefs are what I call mind tricks, which is where I got the name of this uh, podcast from the idea for that. That's another thing I may talk about at some point. But that's sort of it, the ABC of cognitive therapy. I hope you enjoyed this presentation about that. I know it might be a little bit dry. It's very technical, but I think it's very helpful. It's been very helpful for a lot of my patients. It's helpful for me for kind of reframing things and understanding my thoughts and feelings and trying to be a little bit more rational and functional the way I approach stuff. It can be a very helpful tool. If you enjoy this episode or if you enjoy Mind Tricks in general, again, please subscribe to the channel so you'll be notified when new episodes come through and uh, like the episodes, uh, drop me a note. Uh, all of these things are very helpful for me to know that there are people that are benefiting from Mind Tricks Radio and are enjoying it. And again, that prompts me to continue my enthusiasm for making these podcasts. They're obviously, they're a lot of work. It's a labor of love and a passion. And so your feedback is greatly appreciated. Have a wonderful day and a great week. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.